What's up? This was editing Rachel making an appearance. So, before I get into the meat of this episode, I just wanted to put a little note in the beginning. Uh, I am still learning how to use my microphone. I have a Blue Yeti, and it is pretty easy to use, but when we were recording this episode, I uh, played with my settings a bit, and I'm not super happy with uh, the way that my audio ended up sounding. I did the best job uh, post-production that I feel like I could have possibly done, but I did just want to put this note in the beginning that the quality on my end might be a bit weird. Uh, like I said, I did the best I could. It wasn't really worth re-recording considering this episode is very long, but I hope the content offsets the uh, weird quality and we will be back to our regularly scheduled good-sounding podcasting after this episode. So I hope you enjoy. And yeah, that's it. Good evening and welcome to episode four of Sweepers and Reapers podcast. It's Rachel back at you. <laughs> what the fuck was that? <laughs> <laughs> I, don't know, I wanted to switch it up, but what's up? It's me. I'm not very cool as usual. <laughs> Hello, it's Angel. I'm not really sure what that was, but uh, I am also here. What's good? It's the same people that it always is. Uh, so, this week, it's my turn. Uh, I am going to be talking about the Unabomber, as you probably already saw from the title. Um, before we get into that, though, I actually wanted to talk about the uh, Heidi Broussard case that just recently broke uh, in Texas. So uh, the internet was kind of freaking out about it. Basically what it was was this uh, mom, and she was she had just given birth. Her daughter was, I think, like two weeks old, um, and her name was Heidi Broussard. And the internet was freaking out about it because she went missing along with her baby, and uh, she had a fiancé that was the baby's dad. And everyone was kind of assuming that it would be another Chris Watts situation. Um, and they, like, tore her fiancé apart on the internet, which, not cool, because uh, he didn't end up having anything to do with it. Um, as it turns out, her best friend of uh, over 20 years, I believe her name was Megan. Um, Megan had been pregnant alongside Heidi. Uh, pregnant, air quotes. And uh, turns out she was faking a pregnancy and uh, ended up kidnapping uh, Heidi and the baby. And Heidi was found in the trunk of a car um, and... Megan had her baby and was claiming that it was her baby, and that just happened. That was a very brief uh, overview. There's more details that are coming out now, but... Rachel, watch What's out. That? Ten years from now, you and Dylan. <laughs> just kidding. Terrible joke. But <laughs> I just like to brag, like, hello, I've known Rachel for ten whole years. Did you know this? <laughs> I knew this. <laughs> Sorry. Obnoxious. <laughs> Wow, you're way cooler than everyone else that knows me. For Everyone's sure. clicking off. 
I mean, we're doing pretty okay for, you know, a first podcast. Um, it is a day after Christmas. So, Angel, I'm going to ask you, best present you got and best present you gave. Oh, no. Um, I got my nephew, Easton, a bunch of books, and he really, really likes books. So, it's probably the best present that I gave. And the best present that I received was probably a vlogging camera. So if you want to see my beautiful face all around Disney World, I'll give you my channel. Put me on when I come next month. It's just videos of me and Rachel and then I quit. (laughs) There is under a month until Angel and I are together and we'll record uh, as many episodes of the podcast in person as we can physically stand while also spending entire days at Disney World. (laughs) So we'll let you know how that goes. Live um, from the Haunted Mansion, this is Sweepers <laughs> and Reapers. I'm bringing my Blue Yeti into Magic Kingdom um, for the fuck of it. The fuck of it? I don't know. I'm Take tired. pictures with it. Like, you know how people have stuffed animals that they take around Disney World? It's just oh your my mic. God. <laughs> uh, for Christmas, Dylan got this, like, uh, you know there's there's hands that you can like put on your fingers and they're like tiny hands. Yeah. Uh, Dylan got that. Only it's a cat, so it's like a one of them is a cat head, <laughs> and then the rest of them are cat paws, and it's nightmare fuel. You sent me a picture of that, and I said, "What was it?" And you never answered. <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay." Like I think you just replied, "Nightmare fuel," and I was like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> Like, it was a very up-close shot with, like, flash, and I had no idea what I was looking at. It was a little terrifying. It's frightening, for sure. Um, I I thought about bringing that to Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) Security's like, ew. Probably won't, but, uh, yeah, so. Same question to you, though. What was the best thing you gave, and what was the best thing you received? I got Dylan. Um, He really likes Cowboy Bebop. And I got him some pajama pants that have, like, the corgi from Cowboy Bebop all over them. And then the the little, like, strings say, see you, space cowboy. I was pretty nice thrilled when I found those. And they were in his size. I was like, oh, I thought you were just going to say he really likes cowboys. And I was like, whoa. He does like cowboys, too. But <laughs> <laughs> it's not a lie. So, thing Unabomber. Are you ready to talk about him. How much would you say that you know about him? I I know a little bit. And I told Timmy a few weeks ago that you were doing the Unabomber. And he like went on this Googling spree. And I'm like, listen, no spoilers. I know a little bit, not everything. So I'm excited. I'm excited. Okay, cool. Well, I have a lot to tell you. So buckle up. <laughs> All right. So this time I have paper notes as well. So hopefully that's a little easier to follow. Last episode I was, um, at the Harvey Kerrigan episode, I was on my iPad looking at notes and that wasn't super convenient. So sorry, Earth. Love you and stuff, but I did. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Theodore John Kaczynski was born on May 22nd, 1942. I believe that makes him a Gemini. I think so. I think so. Probably. Uh, And he was born in Chicago. Um, Ted's parents were, uh, they were named Wanda and Theodore, but he wasn't a junior, which is interesting. His dad had a different uh, mentally. 
So they were uh, working class, second generation Polish Americans. And Ted was the older of his parents' two children. Um, he had a younger brother named David. So Ted was a really angry kid. Um, he would have really persistent issues controlling his anger. And oftentimes he was just salty as fuck at his parents for no reason. Um, like literally I couldn't find a bunch of info on like his parents, how they treated him. But from what I saw, they weren't abusive. They weren't like necessarily bad parents. Um, but Ted fucking hated his parents from like the jump. He would always claim that his parents ruined his life, which cool. Is there anything that he maybe said, like, oh, they ruined my life by doing this, this, and this, or was it just a blanket? You ruined my life. So his brother David, um, later on, would say, like, he remembers that rage existing, like, very early on. Um, So I think... I almost wonder if he just didn't know how to talk about feelings, so it mm. was just, rah. it was the 40s when he was born, so I don't fucking know. Mm. But uh, one time in a note that Ted wrote to, I, I shouldn't laugh at this, this is terrible, uh, in a note that Ted wrote to one of his parents, I don't know which one, but in a note to one of his parents, he said, I can't wait until you die so I can spit on your corpse. Yikes! So obviously a really pleasant dude to be around. I just hit like I was talking with my hands and I hit the armrest in my chair. Um, so one time, a notable uh, incident from Ted's childhood, he was 12 years old um, and his mom was coming up to the dinner table and she had like this big plate of hot food. And as she went to sit down, Ted like pulled her chair out from under her, which we've all had that happen to us. And it sucks so bad. Don't do that to people. Hot food. <laughs> um, so he pulls out her chair from underneath her and it, obviously the food spills everywhere all over her. Um, from what I read, she wasn't like burned or injured or anything, but obviously it's a very like shitty and you know borderline embarrassing thing to do. That's when my kid gets sent to a special summer camp or something. Like That's I when don't you know, Harvey's mom, and you just roll up to the orphanage and you're like, "Hey guys, got this kid here. Can you do anything?" He pulled my chair from under my butt. I've had it. <laughs> I also like. Uh, that shouldn't be funny to me that his mom like tried to take him to an orphanage, Harvey Kerrigan. But like, what the fuck was she thinking? I don't know. I don't know either. But I also like the letter he wrote. Like, they're not. He's not going to spit on their grave. Like that's the usual. He's like, no, nah, I'm going to spit on your corpse before it goes into the ground. Like, oh yeah, this guy pissed. was this. Yeah, he did not like his parents. <laughs> uh, yeah, he. He sucked. So, uh, <laughs> are we laughing? Um, I don't, I don't know, man. We suck too. Uh -huh. Um, so speaking of laughing, the entire time like that this was going on, um, Ted was laughing at his mom falling over with the hot plate of food. Like he was laughing super enthusiastically, very proud of himself, very enthused. Oh. Yes. So then his parents are like, go to your room. Uh, his parents <laughs> had an attic bedroom, which is like kind of 
badass. That's what's wrong with him, though. Like <laughs> terrible, I guess, depending on who you are. Um, and the entire way up to his room, like, he was just fucking losing it. He thought he was the funniest man in the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is like, dude, that's just shitty. Like, that's not, that's not comedy. Even in the 50s, like, no. Would you rather have an attic bedroom or a basement bedroom? <laughs> oh, dude, a basement bedroom. 100%. Ew. I'm trying to sneak out, man. <laughs> sneak people in, sneak people out. I don't think we have basements in Florida because I'm like, how are you yeah, sneaking someone into a basement? Is it not underground? Um, the basement is underground, but Florida, you know, the, there's too much water in the ground mm-hmm. most everywhere for you to have a basement. Yeah. So how are you sneaking out if you're underground? Uh, oftentimes there's like steps that go down. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> my basement in my house, um, isn't underground, but at my mom's house it is, but she doesn't have like a basement door, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but my friend Tyler, um, like his basement, there's like a door and then there's a set of steps that like gets you out. Cool. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, so according to his brother, David, after he, Ted would like have these kinds of incidents, they were like never talked about, which <laughs> relatable, <laughs> uh, but you know, that's something to mention. Um, on rare occasions, Ted would have, a seemingly cordial relationship with his parents. Um, sometimes him, his dad, and his brother would go on these like weekend camping trips, and they would do, you know, camping stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. So Ted's mother would describe him as a precocious child, um, and she would say that he had like a massive appetite for reading he spent a lot of time alone in his bedroom reading um and when he was around she said he was usually like pretty detached and not interested in being there so from day one he wants to be reclusive and not around people um so also random side note um ted never drank like caffeine or alcohol that's what's wrong Uh, with him Solved. Attic bedroom. (laughs) No coffee. (laughs) Okay, fine. Give up your alcohol if you want to. I can respect that, but no coffee or tea. Or soda. I know you don't like soda, but I'm a big soda drinker. I like coffee and tea. I'm a big coffee fiend. Um, According to his brother, he hated the use of mind-altering substances, so he's he's straight edge and... uh, yeah. For a second, I thought you said my doll, and I was like, oh, like, <laughs> just just an added tidbit about Ted. Anyway. He wants you to suffer on your period. <laughs> I think it's really funny that he called them mind-altering substances. Like, obviously, alcohol is, and in from a scientific perspective, caffeine is, but from someone who drinks it every day, I yeah. just, it makes me laugh. I'm like, drinking coffee right now. <laughs> Yeah, literally, I have a green tea next to me, so. Okay, so um, Ted, while also being kind of a dickhead as a kid, he was really fucking smart. Um, He excelled in school from pretty much day one, and uh, later on, uh, after he, like, I guess he would later get his IQ tested, his IQ was 170, which is genius level. Um, So there's that. 170. 
So maybe he was just angry because he felt like he was smarter than everyone or something. Like, I don't know. You know how some people are. Like, if he was just, like, a really, like... Oh, um, what? I said, what, assholes? Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Continue. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so, not only did he skip his junior year of high school, which I don't know about you, but in Maryland is, like, a pretty important year because some of the, uh, like, I think two of the classes that you have to pass to graduate, you take junior year. Um, and we have these, like, tests that you have to do junior year, too. Um, and then as well, like, that's when you put in all your work to, like, apply to colleges and stuff. Um, so but I guess if it was the 50s, like, maybe they yeah, didn't have all of that. Um, and I, back then, like, I know when my mom went to high school, high school was um, 10, 11, 12, and then ninth grade was still middle school. Yeah, I was like so, that for my mom, too. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't care too much to look into that, but he did skip his junior year, which is impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and he graduated high school at age 15, which when I was 15, I was a sophomore, so that's a little insane. I missed 15-year-old Rachel. You should bring her back. So, because he was super smart and a hard worker in school, and he also just, like, generally enjoyed school, um, I think he liked doing things he was good at. As we do. Yeah. Yeah. Fair. I can relate to that. Uh, None of the other stuff, but I can relate to that. (laughs) Uh, So, Ted got a full scholarship to Harvard, um, and he started his undergrad at age 16. Um. And he would get his bachelor's degree in mathematics from Harvard in 1962 at age 20. And his GPA was 3.12, which uh, is well above average. Bro, get a life. (laughs) (laughs) Literally. Like, have some fun, man. Light up. Um, So... This next little bit here is going to be about the uh, psychological study that Ted participated in at Harvard. Um, It was performed by Harvard psychologist Henry Murray. um, And during my research, um, I found that this study would later be described by author Alston Chase as purposefully brutalizing. And I will tell you why. So uh, students who were participating in this study were told that they would be debating personal philosophy with, uh, like, another one of their peers, and they were all told to write essays that outline, like, their personal beliefs um, and, like, aspirations. Uh, so what actually happened was the students' essays were given to anonymous lawyers, and after the lawyers reviewed the essays, they would have these interviews, and I say interviews in air quotes and very loosely, um, and during the interviews, the attorneys would essentially just bully and belittle the students and use the contents of the essay to do so. Ew. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> You know, back to the purposefully brutalizing thing. Um, it's just weird, but like I said, they um, they reportedly didn't know at the start of it. But also, um, I found out that the study went on for three years. So at that point, like after the first interview, you've got to know, you know, what's going on and why you would. I don't know. Ted was fucking weird. So. During the interviews, they were actually hooked up to, I guess, something like a 
polygraph machine. I'm not entirely sure, but it would monitor their like physiological reactions, and they would film the sessions. I I don't yeah. have so anything to add, but I'm just like ew. I don't I don't like the sounds of this. It's a little spooky. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> After you, you know, after the beans are spilled, I feel like I would be like, peace, I'm not doing this anymore. But because I would, you know, there's no, I don't think he has like a legal obligation or anything to participate. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know what these people were doing, but uh, they would film the, the interviews and then later on they would play them back to the subjects like over and over and over and make them watch them. Um, really, really fucking weird. Um I didn't look into, like, the findings of this study as well, but I should have done that, and I'm realizing that now. But if you're interested, I'm sure you can look it up. (laughs) Uh, So he started participating in this experiment as a sophomore when he would have been, like, 17 or 18. Mm -hmm. And it lasted three years, like I said. Um, Over the course of those three years, Ted was getting interviewed Borderline harassed by someone new every week. Um, so a lot of conspiracy theorists actually suggest that the study was part of MKUltra. Oh. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not going into that. But a lot of people do suspect that. And um, while I was researching, according to Murderpedia, the study was sponsored by the CIA. So Yikes. I think... Do with that information what you will, but that is what I found. Um, and also a lot of other people would um, theorize that Ted's experiences during the study could have potentially uh, maybe been motivation for his later criminal activities. I don't, I don't see, I, I'm not a psychologist, so I don't know. I just don't see the correlation personally um you know knowing everything he did but maybe he just i don't know you said he was angry and a weird little kid like odd you know given his already like his issues with his own anger Mm -hmm. that he would subject himself to that like that's so weird yeah i don't know maybe it's what broke him though i guess i i i I don't know. I understood like that word. I don't fucking know. Do you know if uh, once he signed up for this study, could he leave at any point? Like, all right. I didn't find out. Like, I don't think, I don't know how studies work, but I would imagine that, like, especially a university uh, sponsored, like, study like that, you wouldn't have any kind of legal obligation, but I don't know. Did you? It's not like a so yeah did you say he got in on a scholarship perhaps correct he got a full ride so possibly maybe they i don't know that's a stretch to be like they threat they they threatened to take a scholarship away if he didn't proceed with like what he signed up for he's such a good student you know yeah like the reach like i don't fucking know i don't know he was a weird dude and he didn't like people very much as you'll (laughs) find out so I don't know why he did that, but wanted to put that in there. Uh, Ted graduates from Harvard in 1962 with his bachelor's in mathematics. I think I said that before. Gross. Um, I know. 
And uh, after that, he would enroll in the University of Michigan to pursue his master's, uh, also in mathematics. Gross. Um, Get a life. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking buck up, buttercup. (laughs) (laughs) Um. So, reportedly, Michigan wasn't actually his first choice for, for uh, grad school. He uh, chose to go there because they offered him um, a decent scholarship and a teaching position, which I'm guessing is like a TA or something, like not actually teaching. Yeah, because I don't know. Maybe back in the day you could teach college classes with a bachelor's degree, but that doesn't sound yeah. super correct or anything. Like. Imagine it's probably like a TA kind yeah. of thing. Um, he so he got his master's uh, from University of Michigan in 1964, and then he got his PhD in 1967, all in mathematics. So technically, Ted was Doctor Ted Kaczynski, Doctor of Mathematics. Who which, likes math that much? I don't understand. Uh, recluses. I mean, he wasn't old at this time. He's like, he, he. So also, like, I just want to note. That he's 23 at this point. So, like, he's 23 and he has three degrees. I'm 23 and I have none. Uh, maybe <laughs> you should have you posted math and it just would give you the spice in your yeah, life. I think is what uh, should have happened there. <laughs> so, uh, actually, this, like, is means nothing to me. And it's probably not going to mean anything to anyone else. But... <laughs> His doctoral dissertation was called Boundary Functions, and it won the Sumner B. Myers Prize in Michigan for the state's best mathematics dissertation. Wow, congratulations, Ted. So he's he's out here, truly. <laughs> so after he graduates with his doctorate, uh, Ted goes on to accept a position of assistant professor of mathematics at uh, UC Berkeley, and Ted would be the youngest person in the school's history to hold this position. Uh, again, he was 23. So, like I said, he's out here. Amazing. <laughs> uh, so, apparently he wasn't actually, like, well-liked by his students. And he said, like, it was said that he was just super uncomfortable or he seemed very uncomfortable while he was teaching. Um, and he would <laughs> resign from this position with literally no notice on June 30th, 1969. So he just left and then never came back. And they were probably like, okay, I guess he resigned. <laughs> so, like, I'm sure, you know, like, they weren't shit out of luck, but still. I wonder if they had to cancel that class for the rest of the semester or something, like, or if they just had professors, like, Oh wait, he was—he probably was—he he was a professor at this point, yeah. Uh, it said assistant professor, so okay, okay. Yes. I don't fucking know what that means. Me neither. I go to a community <laughs> college. Oh, well, I did for a little bit, but anyway. Uh, so after he resigned, uh, he moved to his parents' home back in Illinois and he stayed there for two years. Um, and I didn't find actually a ton of what he spent those two years doing. Math. Probably. This guy probably really liked Sudoku, if that was around at that point. <laughs> so I, I agree. I that if he did. Um, so in 1971, Ted would move to eat... Bleh. Do that again. <laughs> in 
1971, uh, Ted moved to a remote area outside of Lincoln, Montana to live in a small cabin that he built himself. Fun fact about me. Um, so the museum um, in D.C. is actually closing uh, like next week at the, end, at the end of the year. Um, but they used to have the cabin there. Um, and they had it like... I believe there were some artifacts from there, and then they had, you know, tried to make it look like how it was when he was there. Really fucking cool, but also, like, a bit jarring to stand in front of. Uh, so they had a whole cabin. <laughs> it's not It's not big at all. Like, it's, it's tiny. It's um, like it's, one of those tiny houses. Hashtag tiny house. Minimalist. Like, like... So it's called it's a cabin, yes, but it's like it was fucking tiny. Um, There's pictures of it online. Welcome to my wooden porta potty. All right, I got you. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I've seen that. I've stood next to Ted Bundy's VW. So you know, I I think you need to mention that every single episode. Just like. I'm aficionado. Like, if in case you forgot, I stood next to the car and the cabin. Did and you s- I also saw uh, some handcuffs of Dahmer War. No big deal. Was there any Gacy stuff there? I've seen pictures online. It was in the Crime and Punishment Museum, not the museum. But uh, uh, they had some original Gacy works there, uh, which are fucking creepy, like, if he killed people or not, they're fucking creepy. (laughs) So back to Ted Kaczynski, not Bundy. Um, So his cabin didn't have electricity or running water, uh, which was exactly how he wanted to live. Uh, And he would work like random odd jobs, you know, to support himself. And um, he would also get like some financial support from his family. I'm assuming his parents, um, but to be fair, he didn't really need a lot of money to support uh, the way he was living, especially back then. Yeah. Uh, his initial goal was to be like 100% self-sufficient and live completely off the land. Um, so he taught himself uh, some different survival skills, uh, such as hunting, edible plant identification, and organic farming, <laughs> which I thought was really interesting. Um I don't know what he was using as, like, his fertilizer, but interesting. We, we can make assumptions. <laughs> I don't know. I just <laughs> I don't know. Um, the, the reason I say that is because my next point is that he's his only way of getting around was this old bike. So, like, I don't know how he was getting shit to and from his cabin. <laughs> Obviously, he was living sustainably, but you've got to start somewhere. So, is there any record of what he was growing? <laughs> no. no. Uh, what did you ask me? Uh, sorry. I said, um, is there any record to show what he was growing, like, with his organic uh, system? I didn't find it. I look too much into it. I'm so stupid. Um, I said organic system. Like, it's just, it's yeah. System. Oh, okay. In theory. Gotcha. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not the word I would use, but it's not incorrect. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Rachel. <laughs> no problem. Uh, so, sorry, I used to work in an organic grocery store. I just have to put that in there. So, you know that, but 
other people might not. Now all the DMs are flooded with questions about organic uh, groceries and herbal uh, supplements. For any of them, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so um, apparently, also that way that like he was living wasn't super uncommon uh, for the area. Apparently, people. I don't know if there, point of there were like a lot of people doing that, but it wasn't uncommon. Um, eventually, Ted comes to the conclusion that it would just be impossible to live the way he had been attempting to because of modern society. There was too much destruction of the uh, area around him that he was living in at the hands of uh, not only residential but commercial building projects as well. Um, Where? Fuck, I lost my spot. Uh, so in 1975, he would start sabotaging uh, those local projects. I didn't really find, like, what exactly he was doing to sabotage them. Maybe he was taking his organic fertilizer and just <laughs> sprinkling. sprinkling. <laughs> I don't really know. Um, and around this time, he also was reading a ton about sociology and political philosophy, uh, namely the work of Jacques E-L-L-U-L, sorry, I'm bad at French. Um, So I got this next part from Wikipedia. Uh, So considered by many a philosopher, Elou, we'll say Jacques, was by training a sociologist to approach the question of technology and human action from a dialectical viewpoint. His constant concern was the emergence of a technological tyranny over humanity. As a philosopher and theologian, 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 he further explored the religiosity of of the technology. Religiosity, I like that word. I never heard that before. Me neither. Basically, um, this is kind of where the seeds of, um, Ted's, like, fear and distaste for modern, uh, technologies kind of are planted. Imagine this guy in 2019, like, if he... I mean, he's still alive. Uh, he's in prison, but he would fucking hate it out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, face ID, not for Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> So, um, also, I'm going to read a quote um, from a 1999 interview with Ted about, uh, like, the area that he was living in. It's kind of rolling country, not flat, and when you get to the edge of it, you find these ravines that cut very stiffly into cliff-like drop-offs. Sorry, turning the page. (laughs) Into cliff-like drop-offs, and there was even a waterfall there. It was about two days' hike from my cabin. That was the best spot until the summer of 1983. That summer, there were too many people around my cabin, so I decided I needed some peace. I went back to the plateau, and when I got there, I found they had put a road right through the middle of it. You can, you just can't imagine how upset I was. From that point on, I decided that rather than trying to acquire further wilderness skills, I would work on getting back at the system. Revenge. I don't... I don't get, okay, I understand maybe he's upset, like, cool, feel the way that you feel, but realistically, what this guy needed to do, he needed to gather all the people in the woods that lived around him, and he needed to build a team of angry people. Like, this one guy, I'm sure he didn't, I don't know what he did. I vaguely know a little bit. So, he needed a team of hippies to help him out. I don't think... (laughs) 
this one guy can destroy what he wanted to destroy. Yeah. He was stupid. He was smart. <laughs> he was a genius, but he was stupid. So, uh, in that 1999 interview that the quote I just read was from, he described that his loss of faith in the uh, potential for reform, like, basically he loses faith in humanity because technology is just taking over us and destroying us, like, in short. This is how I felt when iPod touches were a thing, though. I was... I was so distraught and I was convinced touchscreens were the downfall uh, and people didn't know what they were talking about. And I was like, that touchscreen is not going to last longer than six months, you plebs. And I think I got an iPod Nano because I was so hard pressed about it. So <laughs> Sounds like you. I mean, <laughs> I was about to say nothing has changed. Uh, so another quote. From uh, Ted himself here. <laughs> They'll take the easy way out, and giving up your car, your television set, your electricity is not the path of least resistance for most people. As I see it, I don't think there is any controlled or planned way in which we can dismantle the industrial system. I think that the only way we will get rid of it is if it breaks down and collapses. The big problem is that people don't believe a revolution is possible, and it is not possible precisely because they do not believe it is possible. To a large extent, I think the eco-anarchist movement is accomplishing a great deal, but I think they could do it better. The real revolutionaries should separate themselves from the reformers, and I think that it would be good if a conscious effort was made, was being made to get as many pe people as possible introduced to the wilderness. In a general way, I think what has to be done is not to try and convince or persuade the majority of people that we are right as much as to try to increase tensions in society to the point where things start to break down, to create a situation where people get uncomfortable enough that they're going to rebel. So the question is, how do you increase those tensions? Wow. So my take from this is like, Ted, I think you're one of the very few people in the world that sh shares this viewpoint. <laughs> Um, I do believe technology, like, has caveats for sure, but everything in life has caveats, so mm -hmm. I don't think that's, um, you know, something to hold against it, but um, I think it's really interesting, and it does remind me of, like, Manson a bit as well, this yeah. very, like, I need to incite a revolution kind of mentality is very weird i just what was his end goal and like what like i want to know what technological things set him off because i'm thinking back to like the 70s and stuff like they had tvs and record players um like what are we what are we upset about i think just modern technology um like you know he mentions the electricity the car the tv set um so it seems like in general, um, and later on you'll find out more about his viewpoint, but just uh, most technological advances that benefit us, <laughs> he was not a fan of. So why did he not just, like, join the Amish? This is, he would have been so much happier. He'd just go hang out with no electricity and a horse-drawn buggy, and he would have had a beautiful <laughs> life. Like... It's that easy. I think he wanted to be able to do what he wanted, and that's not really a thing in the Amish. I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, 
we will go ahead and go into Ted's first bombing. Uh, it happened on May 25th, 1978, just a few days after Ted turned 36. It's a uh, birthday celebration, uh, if you will, yeah. I guess. Gemini season. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was intended for Northwestern University engineering professor Buckley Christ, uh, and Northwestern is in Chicago. Ted left the package in the parking lot outside of the engineering building, and it had uh, Professor Christ's like return address on it. Um, so it was returned, quote, to him after it was found. Um, now, you know, knowing that he didn't send this package, uh, Professor Chris contacted campus police, and Officer Terry Maker would be the one to open the package, which triggered Ted's homemade bomb. Uh, thankfully, the only injury that he sustained was to his hand, um, due to the fact that the bomb only exploded partially. And during this time, Ted actually was living in Illinois. He was working with his father and brother at a rubber factory. Ted would actually get fired from the factory by his brother in August of 1978. David. Come on now. Yes. Yeah, David had to fire him um, because he was writing, like, rude things about a female supervisor whom uh, he said he was briefly, like, romantically involved with or it was reported to, that he was. Um, but she would actually later deny any kind of relationship between uh, Ted and herself. I mean, would you admit to being romantically involved with the Unabomber? Um, if it was true and, like, you know, I'm in an official police, like, interrogation. Yeah. Maybe, but am I gonna like talk about it at a dinner party? I don't I don't know. Would I tweet about it? Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, you're nuts. I'm just thinking about this whole situation with like the professor who received the package. And I like looking into these things just solely to think about my stupid responses to stuff because in that instance, my thought process is not to be like, oh my goodness, call campus police. This is suspicious. My thought process there is like, oh my gosh, like somebody sent me like a present. Like I would have opened it and my face would have been blown off. Well, so the thing about it was like, it was return addressed to him. Oh, so okay. So I find who it was like actually addressed to, but it had his return address on it. So that's why he called police because he was like, I didn't fucking send this package. So I don't know what this is. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So, uh, <laughs> uh, next we have American Airlines Flight 444. Bruh, a plane? On November 15th, 1979. Okay, uh, the 70s. The 70s. Got it. I'm just like... Almost, almost the 80s. Um, pre-9-11. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ted was all pre-9-11. Um, so, on November 15th, 1979, a bomb was placed in the cargo hold of American Airlines Flight 444, which was a Boeing 727. Flight 444 was traveling from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Um, so, again, Ted was living in Chicago at this time. I didn't do research into how he was able to get the bomb on this plane, um, but he fucking did it somehow. 
uh, where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. I've heard security wasn't as tight, but also I've never been in an airplane to begin with, so I don't know. The cargo hold, though, is, like, where all your suitcases and shit go, mm-hmm. which is where, like, you know, checked baggage would go. So that's why I'm, like, I don't know how he, like, he must have bought a ticket to it and fucking, like, checked a bag or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. I don't, I have no idea how he, act, like, how he got it on the plane. So this bomb actually didn't go off. Um, it had a faulty timing mechanism. It did, however, produce a lot of smoke, which created the need for an emergency landing and evacuation. Um, and it was said that had this bomb exploded, it had the power to like completely obliterate the aircraft. Like, wow. Yeah. So really fucking good that it didn't go off. So because bombing an airplane is a federal offense, the FBI got involved after this incident, and they would be the ones to dub Ted as the Unabomber, the case being called Unabom, that's all caps, U-N-A-B-O-M. And the UNA bit was an acronym for universities and airports, um, because that's what, you know, Ted was attacking, uh, the university and airport bomber. I would love that job. Like, that was someone's job to be like, hey, guys, we're going to dub this guy the Unabomber, and here's why. Like, he didn't make it easy like BTK mm-hmm. and suggest <laughs> nicknames for them to call him. Uh, they came up with it themselves. So Ted also, like, he was leaving straight up false clues in all of his bombs. Um, he would stamp the initials FC, which uh, later was found out that stood for Freedom Club, into the pipe of every single bomb. In one bomb, he left a note that read, Woo, it works. I told you it would dash RV. Uh, I didn't look up what RV means. Sorry. <laughs> uh, really good movie, though. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Phenomenal movie. Um. So also he would mail his stamps. He, uh, also he would mail his bombs with one dollar Eugene O'Neill stamps, and Eugene O'Neill was a uh, famous American playwright. Um, so that was you know another clue. And he would also le- put like bits of uh, tree branches and bark in his bombs, trying to, I guess, use nature to hurt people. That was his personal um, touch. He's like, here's my organic. Yeah. Fern plant. I think that's almost like it's very morbid if you think about it. Like, yeah, he was very passionate about his nature shit and he was using it partially to like hurt people. It's very gross, sad, um, very sad. So he also sent a bomb uh, embedded in a copy of the novel Ice Brothers by Sloane Wilson. And I had never heard of this book, so I Googled it. And um, according to the Google preview of the book, it's a best-selling World War II adventure story based on Sloane Wilson's experiences as a Coast Guard officer on the Greenland Patrol. After the attack on Pearl Harbor, Paul Schumann, a college senior and summer... What the fuck is the next thing? (laughs) Summer sailor enlists in the Coast Guard. His beautiful, mercurial wife, Sylvia, wants him to stay at home in Massachusetts, but Paul is ready for adventure and eager to serve his country. His active duty begins when, without a day of training, he is assigned to be the executive officer aboard the Arluk, Arluk, A-R-L-U-K, a converting fishing trawler patrolling the coast of Greenland for secret German weather bases. Um, so that is a fiction novel, but it is based on the author's uh, 
experiences. Sloan Wilson was probably like, bro, what did I do? Why my book? The guy who wrote Catcher in the Rye as well is probably like, what the fuck is it about my book? Absolutely. Also, just want everyone to know the Catcher in the Rye is the worst book possible. So yes. come, yeah, I think three. come find me cool. in my DMs. Uh, Ryan Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, after the um, American Airlines bombing, the Unabomber Task Force was created, like I mentioned. Uh, it was led by the FBI, but it would also include agents from the ATF and USPS, which, if you didn't know, the USPS has, like, investigators, which is pretty cool. It would grow to be over 150 full-time investigators, um, but they, like, they had pretty much nothing to go on. They weren't really, like... You know, investigating that would have led them to Ted at all. Gotcha. Um, it, all the clues that he did leave were fake. Uh, so this is my favorite part of my script because in 1980, Special Agent John Douglas from the behavior you can like tell that I'm smiling as I say this because I fucking <laughs> love John Douglas. Um, so John Douglas from the Behavioral Sciences Unit of the FBI would publish a psychological profile of the Unabomber. This profile described the offender as a man with above-average intelligence with connections to academia, which is, like, you know, spot on. And it would also characterize the offender as a neo-Luddite holding an academic degree, which Ted had three of. That's pretty vague, though. Like, I mean... Yes, um, but they, that was also, that was, you know, <laughs> they didn't have much. <laughs> um, so I had to Google what a neo-Luddite is, and it is a term used to describe those who are anti-technology or those who dislike slash have a difficult time understanding and Okay, using so that's the not vague part. So, that's really spot on. Yes, yeah, yeah. So again, like, you know, John Douglas... I don't think he's wrong, ever. <laughs> also, the word Luddite is a historical political movement term used to describe people who are opposed to technological innovations. And I got that from Webopedia.com. 1983, uh, John Douglas's profile would be abandoned and replaced by one that the uh, task force had outlined um, by, you know, specifically by people who were studying the physical evidence. Um, and, you know, again, if you remember, Ted was constantly leaving these fake clues. This new profile would allude to the Unabomber being a blue-collar worker, uh, namely a disgruntled airplane mechanic, which, like, wrong. Wrong. <laughs> John Douglas was right. <laughs> Gail slept on him. So the task force after this would set up a 1-800 hotline and a $1 million reward for anyone who provided information that led to the Unabomber's capture, uh, which is a very large... Airplane mechanics everywhere were quaking. They were like, yo, not me. Not my blue collar. <laughs> Not that it matters how those FBI agents who developed the profile, the second profile, uh, <laughs> feel, but can you imagine, like, being that person and, like, having the original profile, you know, scrapped for yours and then it was right the whole time? You would probably feel like a damn fool. Fucking boo-boo the fool. Just quit your job. Dude, I would quit my job. I'd be like, well, one thing I thought I was good at, I'm not. So Ted's next attack was um, on June 10th, 1980 in Lake Forest, Illinois. 
Um, this bomb was actually meant for Percy Wood, who was the president of United Airlines at that time. Um, and Ted mailed the bomb to his house where he opened it and he sustained severe cuts and burns all over his body as a result of the attack, but no major, you know, life-threatening injuries. Ted mailed a bomb to the University of Utah after that, um, where it was diffused on October 8th, 1981. Also, I learned during this research that um, the proper, like, semantics for talking about, like, a bomb that's doesn't go off um is defused and not diffused i'll keep that in mind for my columbine episode (laughs) vocabulary all right (laughs) uh that bomb didn't go off um but you know ted just can't stop won't stop he mailed a bomb to vanderbilt university in tennessee which i didn't um find a bunch on like why he chose that school because he doesn't really have any ties to it. This bomb exploded on May 5th, 1982, so not a fun single to Mayo, and it injured Secretary Janet Smith. Uh, Janet's hands were badly burned, and she also sustained several non-life-threatening injuries um, due to being hit by shrapnel. So next, Ted would send a bomb to his uh, former workplace, UC Berkeley, um, and he would mail it to, I'm going to completely butcher this dude's name. Um, I believe it's Greek. Uh, it is engineering professor D. Okay. Diogenes Angelakis. Love it. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. He was an engineering professor. Uh, it exploded on him on July 2nd, 1982, and his hands and face were pretty badly burned um, and torn up by shrapnel, but no life-threatening injuries. So I have a question. Sure. What were his intentions with these bombs being mailed with, like, I'm sure this guy, because he's really smart, he had to have some knowledge of the fact that the bomb that he placed on the airplane could have completely destroyed the plane. But what I think he's that was sending goal, yeah. Yeah, but what he's sending to these people, like, he has to have some I don't know, idea that they're not going to kill these people, or like, did he not I don't know. Do you get what I'm saying? Like he has to like is he just wanting to slightly injure them and scare them or I don't know if that's really um so it's later on they do find like a shit ton of journal entries um in his cabin when he got arrested. So I'm sure you could find out because they are a lot of them are on the internet, but I'm not really sure. He does later on people do die at the hands of his bombs. Oh, okay. But um I never thought about that actually. Like I don't know if it was just like because, you know, bombs, obviously, depending on the way they're built, are going to vary in strength and whatnot. So that is interesting to think about. Yeah, maybe the size or something to get mailed. He had yeah. to, you know. Oh, yeah. And I guess because he put it, you know, it would be in like a suitcase or whatever on the plane. Yeah. Ted's next bombing wouldn't occur until 1985. Um, and I wanted to take a quick second to talk about cooling off periods because I think that they're really interesting and they're also uh, part of, I don't know technically if Ted is dubbed a serial killer. I I would consider him that, but I don't 
know if technically is, but I think it's really interesting and I want to talk about like what causes them to take them. Um, and this, I'm going to read, um, an excerpt from an article on psychology today by criminal psychologist, Dr. Scott Bond. And he said, the cooling off period is important because it constitutes a timeout for murder for a serial killer. During the cooling off period between murders, a serial killer disappears from the public eye and resumes their seemingly normal routine in life. Incredibly, the life of a serial killer during the cooling off period, particularly if they are a psychopathic killer like Ted Bundy, that is, pathologically devoid of emotion or empathy, may appear completely normal to the unsuspecting observer. Serial predators reemerge from a cooling off period to strike again when the urge to kill becomes overwhelming to them. A serial killer may not even understand their compulsion to kill, but knows that it is both undeniable and uncontrollable when the urge arises. The cooling off period is to a serial killer what coming down from a narcotic high is to a drug addict. It is a time of rest and recomposure. The cooling off period is only a temporary timeout, however. Soon enough, the serial killer will need another victim, just as the heroin addict will eventually need another fix, or the alcoholic will need another drink to calm their cravings. Um, so at this point, Ted hasn't killed anyone, but, um, you know, if you go back on that excerpt and replace killing and murder with attack. Or like an arsonist or something, like they do their thing and they have their fun and then they, yeah, I, I, yeah, I get it. I find that really interesting and it's, you know, obviously really like integral part of the serial killer like cycle, if you will. So I wanted to share that. Um, so the first major injury uh, from one of his bombs would occur on May 15th, 1985, so nearly three years after his uh, previous attack, um, and it would get mailed to UC Berkeley yet again, uh, and it exploded on graduate student John Hauser. Hauser lost four fingers, uh, severed an artery in his right arm, and lost partial vision in his left eye, um, which is fucking terrible. Yeah. And... Just, and, you know, these crimes, like, they're obviously very calculated, but it's just senseless. Like, why the fuck was that necessary? You know? I just, I wonder, like, why could you not just... So did he have any sort of connection to this graduate student, or was it just random? He found him, sent it? Um, I believe that it was, like, outside a building or something like that. Um, okay. I didn't write down who the intended target was, um, but from what I understand, it wasn't him. My thought process with the whole three-year time thing, maybe he was working on making his bombs more... I hate that the only word that's coming to mind is zestier. That is... Well, it's not effective. effective. Yes. Thank you so much. On June 13th, 1985, so a month later, um, he mailed a bomb to Boeing headquarters in Auburn, Washington, and it was defused. So that didn't go off. On November 15th, 1985, yet another one of Ted's homemade bombs would explode, uh, this time on University of Michigan psychology professor James McConnell and his research assistant, Nicklaus Sweeno. Um, they were both injured in the bombing. McConnell only suffered from temporary hearing loss, uh, but Sweeno was left with burns and shrapnel wounds. And that's 
pretty much it on Dang. that. Like, my thought here is just leave people alone. Like, what, what the heck, dude? That's my sentiment towards any, you know, terrible person that we talk about on this podcast. But this guy, just like, go live in the woods. Leave people alone. Become an Amish person. Like, right? Like, he was doing so good in the woods, just fucking minding his own business and, like, idiot. Sorry. That person that built that road, they heard that statement and they were like, whoa. Uh, eyes on the floor. They're, they're, they're not <laughs> happy. So um, now we are going to talk about the first of three people who would be killed by Ted's bombs. His first victim, well, I guess not his first victim, but his first uh, victim who died was named Hugh Stratton. Um, and he was killed on December 11th, 1985. He was described by people as straightforward, honest, and sincere. Uh, he was known to be fair and kind in business. He cared about politics, and he was well-traveled. He owned a uh, computer store in Sacramento, California, and uh, Ted placed a bomb loaded with nails and splinters in the parking lot of Hugh's store, um, and he disguised it as a scrap of lumber. So this next, uh, this is a piece of writing, an excerpt from a piece of writing that Ted wrote, and I found it on McSweeney's.net, and he said, you're, you're going to be disgusted as soon as I'm done reading this. Oh, no. I planted a bomb disguised to look like a scrap of lumber behind Rentec Computer Store in Sacramento. According to the San Francisco exam- examiner, the operator, owner, manager of the store was killed. Quote, blown to bits on December 12th. Excellent. Humane way to eliminate somebody. He probably never felt a thing. $25,000 reward offered. Rather flattering. Ew! Get a life. Get a life. <laughs> he's he's writing about his crimes the entire time that he's committing them, and he's so fucking proud of himself. And it's absurd. And honestly, he just sounds so awkward. Like even in writing, just like excellent. December twelfth. Like ew. Like go somewhere. Red flattering. Yeah. Ew. Also, it was reported that the blast would have blown Hugh back about 10 feet. That's terrible. Yeah, I can't imagine. Um, especially when fucking asshole Ted says, oh, he probably didn't feel a thing. You probably did feel a thing if, you know, your body's pumped with nails and splinters and you're blown back 10 feet. That's a miserable way to die. And I hate you, Ted. Me too, if you're listening. We hate you. It's technology. He's not listening. Oh, duh. Wow. My bad. <laughs> Are you paying attention? Someone, no, someone in his, like, dorm. Is he is, is he in solitary? I don't know. Someone in his dorm right now is listening to Sweepers and Reefers, <laughs> and he's pissed. <laughs> um... So, Ted being the fucking douchebag that he was, he did the same exact thing to a different uh, computer store owner, this time in Salt Lake City, Utah, on February 20th, 1987. Uh, Yet again, he would disguise the bomb as a piece of lumber, and he put it in the parking lot of Gary Wright's computer store, and, you know, he moved it to see what it was, and it injured him. 
The explosion propelled over 200 pieces of shrapnel into Gary's body. Yikes. That's terrible. And that left him with severe nerve damage in his left arm. And so after this attack, Ted takes another cooling off period. He does not do anything until 1993, which is six years later. Six and a half years later. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. It seems like he like takes, during these periods of time, maybe he's able to like tolerate society. Like, I don't yeah. know. Because he has this overwhelming desire to like end modern society, if you will. Yeah, I'm just wondering if there's something that's happening during these periods that like sets him off. Like a new type of computer comes out or something and he's like, well, I'm at it. That would be interesting to, like, look up if there's any, like, corresponding major events. That just really got to him. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. So. Thanks, Rachel. Very flattering. (laughs) (laughs) On June 22nd, 1993... Uh, a bomb that Ted mailed to UC San Francisco geneticist Charles Epstein, who definitely didn't kill himself, in Tiburon, 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 California, uh, it would explode on him. Not only did he uh, lose three fingers, but Charles' eardrum suffered major damage from the bomb, leaving him with uh, partial hearing loss. Damn, that's crazy. Yeah, he's he sucks. Two days later, on June twenty fourth, nineteen ninety three, Yale University computer science professor David Galemter would be uh, Ted's next target. So a bomb went off on him, and he lost his right hand. He sustained quite a bit of damage to his right eye, and obviously major burns and wounds from shrapnel. I hate this. These people were just living their lives, and. Yeah, he was he was a, a terrorist in all senses of the word. And, mm-hmm. like, back in the day, it was very scary. And I think he's a big part of the reason why we have, like, if you see something, say something. Or, you know, in the airports, there's constantly uh, messages on the PA. Like, if you see a abandoned suitcase or abandoned package, whatever, like, report it. I think Ted <laughs> definitely... Uh, incited it a lot although i mean obviously 9-11 is what really changed things but yeah he was the first like real domestic terrorist uh in the states so uh david galemter's brother joel was a behavioral geneticist which i don't know what that means like i know what a geneticist is but behavioral don't know so he had a brother joel and ted would call joel after he bombed his brother uh telling him you are next Joel would never be attacked, but that did happen. I would be terrified. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he reported it, but I mean, you know not to open any boxes, I guess. Yikes. Um, And then two years after the attack on David Galemter, uh, MIT geneticist Philip Sharp would get a threatening letter that was most likely from Ted. Ted would also write a letter to the New York Times uh, where he claimed that his group Freedom Club was responsible for the bombings. 
Um, which also, if you remember, he would just, like stamp the FC um, into the bombs. Was there a club though? No, bitch. There was no <laughs> club. It was just him. I'm just. He said, "My freedom club." Like he don't have a club. He in the woods. <laughs> so next. We unfortunately move on to uh, Ted's second murder via bombing, via bombing, and it happened on December 10th, 1994 in North Caldwell, New Jersey. Uh, One of Ted's bombs killed advertising executive Thomas J. Mosser. Uh, It was mailed to his home, and... In another letter to the New York Times, Ted would claim that Freedom Club blew up Thomas Mosser because his company helped Exxon clean up its public image after the Exxon Valdez incident. I looked it up, um, and that was just a really big oil spill. An oil tanker owned by that company spilled 11 million gallons of crude oil in uh, Alaska's Prince William Sound on March 24th, 1989. Mm. And before the oil spill in 2010, it was the worst oil spill in U.S. history. So Ted was really fucking pissed about that, which I, like, I can respect that, but I didn't mail anyone a bomb. So, yeah. Yeah. I would love to sit down with him and talk about the oil spill in, like, 2010 or just his take on different stuff going on where it's just like you know like what are your thoughts super crotchety i imagine yeah like i'm not like i don't want to be his buddy i just maybe i want i want to go antagonize this guy i'm gonna go antagonize him and be like hey did you hear about this look at my iphone 11 pro max how you feeling i unlock it with my face (laughs) Another reason that Ted cited for uh, Mosser's murder was that his business is the development of techniques for manipulating people's attitudes, which is not wrong. Again, like, yeah, you're not wrong, but you can't mail people bombs because you don't like them. Ted's third and final murder victim would die on April 24th, 1995. Uh, His name was Gilbert Brent Murray, and Ted mailed a bomb to him, which obviously exploded. Uh, Murray was the president of the timber industry lobbying group, California forestry association. So obviously Ted has a major problem with just his existence. (laughs) (laughs) The bomb was was addressed to uh, the former president, William Dennison, um, who had recently retired. So he was probably feeling very lucky. Yeah, could you imagine something's, like, addressed to you, and for whatever reason, you just, that's not you? It's, Nightmare fuel. It's, like, final ugh, final destination. Oh, I hate final destination. I've never seen them, but the commercials give me so much anxiety. <laughs> why do you think, I, I was going to say, why do you think I don't ride roller coasters, but that is not the reason. I am just a baby. Because you're a yeah. Yeah, continue. <laughs> So, uh, in total, Ted's domestic terrorism was made up of 16 bombs, leaving 23 people injured and three dead. Uh, again, all of his bombs, with the exception of uh, the first few, contain the initials FC, like, engraved or stamped uh, onto the pipes. Uh, and just a little fun fact, uh, latent prints on the bombs actually didn't end up matching prints on the letters that were later determined to be authored by Ted. Obvi- like, obviously, he was the Unabomber. Like, that's not up for debate. It's just 
But I want to debate it, Rachel. Come on. No, we're not going to put our tinfoil hats on. It's just a fact that happened. Um, I don't know. I didn't look into it much. I'm sorry. Now we are going to talk about Ted's manifesto. That's right. He had a manifesto. I've heard about this. (laughs) It was titled Industrial Society and Its Future. In 1995, uh, Ted had started mailing letters to a lot of major media outlets, just demanding that they publish his essay word for word. Uh, This manifesto was over 50 pages and 35,000 words. We don't have time for that, dude. Like I thought I was thorough. <laughs> these media outlets are like, wow, um, cool. <laughs> I mean, he loves the earth so much. That's a lot of fucking paper, sir. <laughs> so, uh, too long, don't read. Ted griped about the dangers that modern technology posed to society. Uh, He wanted to rise up against society's, quote, industrial technological system. Ted claimed that uh, he would end his bombing spree if his manifesto was published. Uh, But if they didn't publish it, he was going to keep on going. And the whole thing was written on a typewriter, which, like, I can't believe... Um, obviously, he wasn't going to use a computer, but it's just very funny, like, picturing him typing 50 pages on a typewriter and, like, what if you fuck up? And all the copies. Yeah. Terrible. Later on, it would, uh, the, like, linguistics and whatnot would be forensically analyzed and confirmed to have been written by Ted. A personal favorite highlight from the manifesto is... The Industrial Revolution and its consequences have been a disaster for the human race. So I feel like that it gives you everything you need to know. Absolutely. There. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Before the manifesto was fully published, like, they were just kind of publishing um, excerpts of it. They weren't publishing the full thing um, because, surprisingly, media outlets were, like, super... Uh, what's the word cooperative with the FBI and whatnot during this investigation. Um, so they weren't publishing the whole thing. They were just kind of publishing experts. They were publishing experts. <laughs> Ted's brother, David, we remember him. Uh, his wife, Linda was really urging him to follow up on her suspicions that Ted might be the Unabomber. And I just want to say, before I say anything else, at this point, Linda had never met him. And I think, Based on the way the rest of the story goes, I don't think she ever met him. <laughs> so she had never met him, and she like is like, dude, I think you need to look into this. Like, it's not good. So at first, like David was pretty dismissive based on that fact alone. Like, you've never met Ted. Get out of here. Um, and Linda was kind of just going off of like things she knew about Ted from David. Um, but eventually she got him to read the manifesto and upon reading it, David was like immediately convinced that Ted was the Unabomber, like, which is, you know, a testament to how, uh, like, I guess unique he would have been and how like distinct his writing style and phrasings were. It's like, Oh crap. That's my zany brother. (laughs) He's just quirky. 
I'm just picturing his wife like chasing him around the house like no you don't understand please read this he's like no no like and then he finally sits down like whoa god damn it Linda so after David reads the manifesto he like starts digging through his stuff and he finds letters from Ted um some of which date all the way back to 1970 and uh to his further disappointment these letters were really similar uh, in terms of phrasing and, like, sentence structures to that of the Unabomber-like letters and manifesto uh, that he had read. So David is very distressed at this point, um, very conflicted, obviously. And before the manifesto was published in full, the FBI was uh, holding press conferences consistently to try and get, like, literally anyone to call in a tip that could potentially lead them to uh, the Unabomber's capture. At this time, they were convinced that uh, the Unabomber was from Chicago, which is the city his bombs originated, which they were right about. They thought he worked in or had some connection to Salt Lake City, and uh, then by the 90s, he would be associated with the San Francisco Bay Area, which um, I believe is correct, considering he was at UC Berkeley and whatnot. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't think he actually had any connection to Salt Lake City. And I didn't look into why he was there. Sorry. (laughs) But um, I think, you know, he was, he he was targeting the computer store, obviously. Yeah. Um, So this like geographical knowledge, as well as the writings are kind of what made Linda suspect that Ted might be the Unabomber. After the manifesto was published, the FBI task force was, like, just completely inundated with calls, you know, in response to the million-dollar reward that was being offered. And they also, you know, they were getting a bunch of letters from people claiming to be the Unabomber, who obviously weren't. Um, And that just resulted in, you know, more leads that they had to sit through that ultimately would be dead. What type of person does that? Like, hey, I'm going to call and say I'm the Unabomber. I don't, I don't get it. It's someone who, like, wants to get their dick hard over <laughs> admitting something they didn't do. I mean, that's, I don't know. It's, like, like, the only thing I can think I just, of. ew. I hate those people, too. <laughs> Before he was feeling confident enough to report Ted to the FBI, uh, David had hired private investigator Susan Swanson in Chicago to uh, monitor Ted's activities, but discreetly. Uh, (laughs) surveillance, but make it subtle. (laughs) So actually at this point, um, Ted and David haven't seen each other in 10 years and they had been estranged since 1990. Susan Swanson does her investigation and she finds what she finds, which I don't have in my notes naturally. (laughs) And, uh, so David hired a lawyer out of D.C., and his name was Tony Biscagli. Um, And he hired him to organize all of Susan's findings and, like, plan to eventually make contact with the FBI. David really, like, even through all of this, he did really want to protect Ted. And notably from, like, a kind of standoff situation like Waco, because he knew that if Ted was in a situation like that, he would probably act irrational and do something stupid. In early 1996, uh, Tony Biscagli asked former FBI agent Clinton R. Van Zant to compare the Unabomber's manifesto to uh, the 
copies of those letters that David was keeping from Ted. Upon his first analysis, Van Zant determined that it was more than 60% likely that the manifesto and letters were written by the same person. Um, and then his second analysis determined that the likelihood was even higher. So after Van Zant's second analysis, um, he really urged Biscagli to have his client contact the FBI. Biscagli uh, did so in February of 1996. Uh, linguistic analysis, again, would, you know, determine that the manifesto and letters were written by the same person. However, this time it was done by um, official, you know, like, FBI agents. Um, and that was actually enough to get them a search warrant from a federal judge in Montana. Spicy. I like that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so David really, again, like he wants to remain anonymous throughout this process. Um, I don't know if he necessarily like cared about remaining anonymous to Ted, but he certainly didn't want it to leak to the media. But again, that information leaked pretty early on and an FBI team was dispatched to his home for an interview with himself and his wife. The source of the leak of David's name was actually never determined um, after the FBI did an internal investigation. It was probably his wife. <laughs> like, I told him. She was probably so excited for that interview. She's like, yes, <laughs> oh my God. please sit down in my living room. We're, we're going to have a chat because I've been new. <laughs> I have shit to say. <laughs> so... On April 3rd, 1996, uh, Ted was arrested at his cabin. The FBI discovered a treasure trove of bomb-making supplies uh, along with about 40,000. That's 40,000. Oh, no. I'm handwritten journal pages <gasps> detailing uh, bomb-making activities and experiments, uh, details of some of the Unabomber attacks, and one live bomb that was ready to be mailed. Bro, get a life. <laughs> he was on the ball. He was ready. And then they also recovered what is believed to be the original copy of his manifesto. Reportedly, there were a lot of people who didn't think he was the Unabomber um, until... The search warrant was executed, like, people uh, from the FBI, like, they were like, this is going to be a fucking dead end, but turns out it wasn't. Something that is kind of interesting, for a short time after his arrest, Ted was actually suspected um, for some of the Zodiac killings because of the, the uh, you know, the two years he lived in the Bay Area uh, from 1967 to 1969. I don't know why they thought that, because they're not similar at all, but... They were just reaching. They wanted something, I guess. Um, it was because they both were, like, interested in bombs and codes, and they were both highly intelligent, but, like, everything else is different, so I don't, I don't get it. But, you know, he was quickly ruled out. So Ted's lawyers are going to attempt to use the insanity defense for his trial, but he rejected it. He's like, bro, I'm not insane. I'm not fucking insane. I am sane. <laughs> a court-appointed psychiatrist diagnosed him with paranoid schizophrenia, but um, at the same time found that he was competent enough to stand trial. Ted would be indicted on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, and the uh, murders of Scruton, Mosser, and Murray. Ted would attempt suicide by hanging on January 7th, 1998, um, but he was found. And didn't die, fucking idiot. 
And then um, he pled guilty to all counts on January 22nd, 1998, thus avoiding the death penalty, which I think is just like, I tried to kill myself literally two weeks ago, but like, what's goody? Yeah, <laughs> I don't, I don't get it. Hate it. <laughs> Um, and so he pled guilty and he is serving a life sentence for all those crimes, um, in a maximum security prison in Florence, Colorado. It is a federal prison and he's currently 77 years old. Uh, on August 10th, 2006, uh, federal judge Garland Burl Jr. ordered that personal items, uh, seized from Ted's cabin, were going to be sold at auction to help pay restitution to his victims. These items were pretty much just like all of his original writings, you know, his journal entries and like letters and things like that. Judge Burrell also ordered that any allusions to his victims in these documents was going to be redacted. Good. And Ted's bitch ass would try to challenge those in court, uh, saying that it was a violation of his First Amendment rights, but he lost. So what's your take on that? Would you ever want to own something that was in possession of, like, you know, a high-to-do criminal? Um, no. I don't, I, no. I have mixed feelings about it. I, I don't know. I, an opportunity has never arisen for me to purchase such a thing. So I think if that ever came up, then I would have to, like, really think about it. I think in this situation, it's one thing because the money was going to his victims. Yeah. So, like, I think in that case, it's one thing to own his writings. I think in that kind of situation, like, do what you want. I don't think I would want to own that. But, like, I wouldn't have a problem with that because, you know, it is going to his victims. Mm -hmm. um, private selling, I think, is a different ball. Yeah. Um, and then also some of his writings are in the University of Michigan Special Collections Library. David actually writes Ted monthly, um, but he's never gotten a response, and um, they've they've not spoken uh, in you know decades. And you know Ted also is aware that David is the one who turned him in. I wouldn't write him back either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, David is all Ted has, but like obviously he doesn't give a shit. So. He's an angry dude. He's holding on to it. He's like, nah. Fuck yeah. And that is it for me. That's all I have. This is a long-ass episode. Thank you for tuning in and listening if you made it this far. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, I did a lot of research for this, so thank you. You're all beautiful. Please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and not yet Twitter, but soon Twitter. Because we suck, but we'll do it. I'm already on Twitter all the time anyways. Like, I need to get on it. Yeah. Um, we also have a Gmail um, that is in our Instagram. You can email us whatever the fuck you want, case suggestions, cool stories, <laughs> current events, whatever. Um, so, again, thank you so much for listening. I hope you had a good Christmas. Uh, if you celebrate, I hope you had a good Hanukkah if you celebrate. Happy Toyota-thon. Happy Toyota-thon. Happy fucking New Year. Yeah. That's it. Bye. <laughs> Bye.